You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. And I've never had a bad day in my life. Welcome to our show. Again, sponsored to you by North Star Mat Service. In business since 19, uh, well, I'm sorry, since 1967, 52 years, I think, or maybe 53 now. So I have my daughter Stacy with me in the studio and my wife Sharon of 52 years. And uh, we're going to talk more about uh, the, the building of my company when I was younger. And Stacy will lead off with some questions. Last week we talked about how you bought um, Eddie Zelensky out of his business. It was sort of his retirement plan for you. You had already been operating on your own. You showed up to have your mats cleaned at the facility that was cleaning the mats, saw this guy's mats. Who's this guy? He meets Eddie Zelensky. So how long had you been um, kind of training with Eddie Zelensky before you bought him out? Well, I really knew the business, but not as well as Eddie. I already had, as I mentioned before, a window cleaning company and a little company called Ready Rug. I thought that was clever, as I mentioned, the R-E-D-D-I, R-U-G. And Eddie owned this company called Hold Tight, H-O-L-D-T-I-T-E, uh, rug rental or carpet rental. And what he would do back in those days, Stacy, um, all the mats were made of vinyl backings. They were very stiff and they were very slippery. And they worked okay on hard surface floors, but when you put them on carpeting, they really traveled. Uh, so what Eddie did, <clears throat> excuse me, what Eddie, what Eddie did, he would uh, tape Velcro or actually um, glue Velcro strips mm-hmm. to the backs of his mats and then they would hold tight to the floor. And oh, that's, that's where idea. he got the name. So it's kind of like, again, one of these small mom and pop business ideas, but Eddie thought it was good. I always thought it was, I didn't, I never did like the name. Of course, I like Ready Rug better. But Hold Tight was what I bought, and that's what I ran with for a number of years because he did so much more volume than we did as Ready Rug. Uh, so we just incorporated all of our customers into his model and his company, which became our company. So as you, I mentioned, we were going to Kenwood Carpet Service on Wyoming. And uh, a guy by the name of Bill Estes owned it at the time. And uh, he had his brother-in-law... Uh, Don running the company for him while Bill was doing uh, property development in Florida. And so when I became um, a, a customer of theirs, they would clean my mats. So they were always cleaning Eddie's too. One thing that That's happened, how you found out about Eddie. Right, through Kenwood right. Carpet Service. I was dropping off my mats, what few I had, and Eddie was dropping off a lot of mats compared to mine. And so that's when I met Eddie and we we kind of met and worked together. And then he, he didn't really need to teach me much about the business because I already knew about the business. But what he did teach me was about routing and uh, frequencies of service. I already knew about pricing and so forth. Excuse me. So that part I had down pretty good. Um, so really all that he did was spend about six to eight weeks with me teaching me his customers. Oh. Because uh, these are all done through routes. If you have a customer that wants their match changed every week, you got to do them every every Tuesday. You can't do them Tuesday one week and then uh, Friday the next week and then go back on Tuesday. It jams them up too much or it's too long between spaces. And Eddie didn't like those customers. As a matter of fact, he liked uh, every other week customers where you came there every 14 days. He didn't like every week customers, weekly customers, every seven days. Or he didn't like every month customers, every 28 days. He liked every other week. He was very uh, rigid in the way he set up his, his company. Mm-hmm. And it worked for him. So – 
uh, I just absorbed his uh, – a better way to put it, I absorbed my small company into his company, made it bigger, sold the window cleaning company. I realized really quick that the window cleaning was – although profitable, it was very time-consuming and very labor-intensive. And this company wasn't – or this type of model wasn't because even when I sleep, I'm making money because the mats are out there being rented. Mm-hmm. Now, we have to work for that and we have laundries and we have routes and we have trucks and now we have 15 routes and 35 employees or maybe it's 37 employees now and we have you know thousands or more customers. Um, but even like right now, Friday afternoon – we're all closed down for the day, and those mats are out there making money. Um, you get paid for them when you pick them up and put the clean one down. But it was like the best way I can put it is like golf balls at a driving range. You, they sit there, someone hits them, someone goes picks them up, they wash them, and then they hit them again. So that's kind of the the beauty, if you will, of of this kind of industry, and it's also also reoccurring income. So. Um, it worked very well. I sold the window cleaning company. That's I started on this example between the window cleaning being labor intensive, although our company is very labor intensive also. It is. But it's not um, – and, it, and it's hard to explain the difference, but it's it's just more profitable and, mm-hmm. and it, it, the model works much better. You don't have to wait for other people. Whereas the window well, cleaning, you had too. to wait for other people to get out of the booth at the Ramshorn or the Denny's or whatever it was. Right now, you guys are kind of on your own schedule. Well, you still have to be when the when the people are open. But yes, mm-hmm. right. It was it was it was just more uh, user friendly to the for the corporate side. Mm-hmm. So then I ended up uh, being a one of the. Actually, I became Kenwood Carpets' largest customer. They had other companies in there also. There were other little small mat companies. Uh, um, a one mat service. I can't remember all the. Uh, Harry Castleman had a had a little spot in there, and um, but I they gave me free rent, and uh, so I mentioned the story before how I bought all those mats out of W Linton Howard in Atlanta, and I was storing them on my front porch or our front porch, and the the balance of them in my mother's basement over across the way, across the street, um, and they stayed in there for a number of years till I found homes for those in terms of salesmanship and sales sales calls. But when I became Kenwood's biggest customer, they offered me free um, floor space. I didn't have to pay rent. So that was another thing that really helped me cut my overhead. I didn't have to rent a building. Mm -hmm. To keep your inventory. So they would clean them and then store them until you were ready to to switch them out with your house. Think about it. Half my inventory was always on the floor somewhere out Mm -hmm. out in the Detroit area. So they were in these buildings that were my customers' floors. And the other half was at Kenwood. Mm-hmm. Or actually a better, better way to put it would be one-third, one, one half, one-quarter, one-quarter. One-half would be on the floor. One-quarter would be in processing, being cleaned. And the other quarter would be in inventory, waiting to go out and do the route the next day, that type of thing. So that went along very well uh, from 1970-something, like early 70s, until about 1980 or 81. And then um, – Bill came to me through Don, his brother and brother-in-law, and said, uh, we'd like to sell you Kenwood Carpet Service. Well, that really took me aback because, um, first of all, I didn't think I had enough. I knew I didn't have enough money to buy another company at that time. I also um, didn't really want the company because it came with the real estate, which was in a, in a, in a challenging part of Detroit. Detroit wasn't. 
it was on the way down back in those days. Mm-hmm. Not and like it is now, not, where it's, it's on the way it's back not up. Like it is now, now, right? It was, it, it was, in, it was, it was on, on the downturn, and nobody. Uh, there was, there was the, the exodus of people and businesses out of Detroit. Sure. So, um, but I knew I had to have Kenwood instinctively. I knew I had to have Kenwood to survive because without cleaning a uh, way to clean my mats, uh, it'd be like a restaurant without a grill. You could have the eggs, you could have the bacon. You could have the hash browns. You could have the cooks. You could have the building. You could have the counter. You could have the customers. But if you don't have a way to cook it on the grill, you're out of business. Well, I, if I didn't have a way to clean the mats, I was out of business. Right. So it was almost like a catch-22 for me. Um, sort of like my company. So without my cone manufacturer or my co-packer, I don't have a business because exactly. I'm relying on them to do that service. Right. Because I don't want to own the building. Right. I don't want to own the ovens, the mixers. Sure. And whatnot. Exactly right. So I had a two-sided company, basically, and if, imagine, if you will, and the listeners out there, if you will, to think about a, a triangle, just sitting straight up like a, a, a triangle with the uh, base, uh, one side being sales, the other side being service, which I owned. I owned the sales and the service side, but the base of the triangle, let's call that production, the cleaning. I didn't own the production. I didn't own the base of my triangle, and as long as somebody else owned the base, and was willing to do that for me, I was in fine shape. But the minute it looked like I was going to disappear, and it did look like it was going to disappear because if I didn't buy Kenwood, one of my competitors probably would. Mm-hmm. They came to me first because I was the biggest, and they probably – and they already had seen me buy not only Eddie out, but I bought some other companies out. They'd seen that I was a person of integrity and I could pay my bills and would honor my commitments. And so they realized that um, – because they, they offered to me on a land contract. Uh, so um, there was no way I could afford it. And um, when I when how I much thought, did they want for it? Um, Sixty five thousand dollars. They okay. wanted um, for the whole thing. The building and it was a ten thousand square foot building on Wyoming Street near Finkel, and uh, the business itself. Now the interesting thing about Kenwood Carpet Service, along with Kenwood Carpet Service, they had this you know this, this mat cleaning company. Back in those days, they were like Hagopian, and they would clean Oriental rugs. But in addition to that, they owned another company called General United. It came with two companies. And um, they, in addition to cleaning mats and Oriental rugs, and area rugs, but mainly Oriental rugs, they installed carpeting for Sears and Roebuck for five stores. Mm-hmm. Now, that, I don't remember all the stores. One was Twelve Oaks Mall. One was Livonia Mall. One was uh, Lincoln, somewhere down in Lincoln Park, uh, Allen Park, or something somewhere Southfield and Allen Road, something like that. One was Oakland Mall, and it might have been Macomb Mall. I didn't have all the Sears stores. They didn't have all the Sears stores, but they had a, a lion's share of these Sears stores. That they, if I did, I mention Livonia Mall. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah. So um, they installed. So if you bought carpeting from Sears, Sears sold them the carpeting. And then the installation and the padding was provided by Kenwood and, and General United. Sears jobbed that out. Mm-hmm. So almost overnight, I was in the carpet installation business for only one customer, Sears and Roebuck. It was very profitable, but I knew nothing about that business. And I didn't want to learn anything about that business because I really was very focused on my own Matt rental company. I really didn't want to be in the carpet cleaning, I mean, the carpet uh, installation business. So I had a friend of mine. That wanted to, was looking for a company. He'd sold his company and was looking for another company to buy. And in the meantime, he was selling cars. 
And so um, I, I went to him and I said, look, if you'd like to, I'm going to buy this company. You run it for me and you learn all you can about it. And then when I'm ready to sell and move out, because I want to I want to leave Detroit and go to Farmington Hills, because I lived in Farmington Hills. And I wanted to be close to my home. I said, I'll sell you the carpet cleaning company and I'll, I mean, a carpet installation company and I'll sell the building separately. So that's what we did. So the long, basically what happened was I ended up selling it to him for $25,000. I sold the building for $45,000. About This would be about two or three years later. To somebody else or to him? No, no, no. I'm sorry. If, to, to somebody else. Okay. Uh, so we sold the building separate of that on a land contract. It took me a while to get paid my money back. But again, it was very difficult to sell buildings in Detroit. And this was not a great building. It was really in pretty tough shape. Even though I'd spent thousands of dollars on it, to upgrade it, um, it needed a lot of work. So um, that then we just moved out of Detroit. But now I already had the formula. I, I owned the, the production. I owned. The, I had already owned the sales side, and I owned the service side. And so then I. Um, I had the whole. I own the whole monopoly set, as I like to call it. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you bought Kenwood from them, <clears throat> um, and you said that you had purchased some other businesses along the way, which of these other mat- rental services had you purchased, and did they approach you, or did you approach them? Uh, they were all again. They were all kind of like um, low fruit because they were low hanging fruit because they were already at Kenwood dropping their mats off. Mm-hmm. And uh, one gentleman was was much older, and another guy was had. Uh, I'd actually helped one. I helped two guys start companies, uh, both of which I ended up helping them start their companies, and both of which I ended up buying them out uh, because they. I think they looked at my success and thought it was simple. Mm. And um, what we what we did or what I did looked simple, but it wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. And so when they went into the business, they thought, well, man, this guy's just – because I was really very, doing very well financially. I mean, it was no – I owned my first airplane when I was 21 years old. I met with success early in life. I worked very hard for it. But the trappings of success were there, and I think people looked at my – I'm not sure, but I think that these guys looked at my life and thought, wow, he did that. I, like we talked about Brian Tracy, it never occurred to him. Mm-hmm. Well, this occurred to them. This is a way to make money. And um, what they didn't really realize, and even though – even though I didn't even realize, is that they weren't committed to what they did. And mm-hmm. for and again, anybody over listening to this podcast, one of the key things you really have to understand is is commitment. And I taught Stacy and John and Lori the the difference between involvement and commitment when they were very young. And I'll have Stacy share that with you. What Stacy? What's the difference between in, involvement and commitment? Tell me about that. That's the ham and egg breakfast. The ham and the- egg breakfast. <laughs> the ham and egg breakfast, the chicken is involved, but the pig is committed. <laughs> right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I was always committed, not as much as I became later, but I always wanted to make my idea work. And it never dawned on me, ever, never, ever occurred to me in my mind that I would fail, that I couldn't do this. Um, it just it just made a lot of sense to me. I was very motivated. I never liked working for anybody else. Uh, I was destined to be an entrepreneur. And I believe, and um, so it was very easy for me to just realize I can I can really work hard and, and enjoy the, the benefit and the fruits of my labor. And so um, you asked me about the people I bought out. So I bought these two fellows out that I'd helped start their companies. Actually, there were three of them. 
And how long after had they started it that they wanted out? Not long, a couple of years. Right. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't. They, they they built them up to 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 fledgling companies. They they there was no real. And I hardly had to pay anything for them. Not that I wanted to steal them from them. There was just no value there. They didn't have any real volume like Eddie did, mm-hmm. right? And uh, it, it helped a little bit to build the volume. But you're constantly looking for the new customer. Uh, my sales manager, Mike Williams, he's a really great guy, and we got we were fortunate enough to get Mike from. Um, Dick Sporting Goods and Galleons. He worked for Galleons and before that, Orvis. And uh, when when Mike first came to, to work for me, um, or us, I should say, 10 years ago, uh, he had never sold door-to-door cold calling like we do. And it's not all that way, but most of it, mostly it is. You're, you're always looking for a new customer, the wolf at the door type thing. And uh, so I was teaching Mike the business, and he had sales experience, but not this kind. He had retail sales sales experience, and so uh, I would go out with him, and we and we I'd show him some techniques and so forth or cold calls, and then we sent him out on his own, and we gave him kind of a very easy formula to follow with pricing and sizes of mats and make it streamlined, very simple to understand and relate to somebody else. Because if you don't know what you're doing, there's no substitute for knowing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So if you if you don't know what you're doing, you want to make it as rudimentary as elementary as possible. So um, I told Mike he, he I'd come in every day, or he'd come in every day at the end of the day, and it, it, t- it took him about three or four years to get his courage up to tell me the story. It was really funny. One day he came in, he said, "You know, this is right after he'd done very well, and he, now he's our sales manager, but he was our only salesman other than myself, and." Um, he uh, came in and he said, you know, Doc, he said, uh, he didn't come in. He, he, we were talking and it was a very relaxed situation. And he said, you know, Doc, he said, when I first came to work for you, he said, you taught me the, the ropes and, you know, sent me out on my own. And then I'd make 50, 60 cold calls a day. And he said, and I'd be beat. And, and uh, you'd, I'd walk in the door after all that, all that rejection. And you'd, you'd look at me and say, what'd you sell today, Williams? And he, <laughs> I didn't sell anything today. And I would bug him. And he said, but I didn't want to tell you that. He said, well, I didn't sell anything today. He said, but man, I was thinking, I didn't sell anything today. I'm not selling anything at all. And this is not going well. And so they said, and then he said, I finally sold my first stop. And the first thing you said to me, well, there's a beginning and end to everything. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. he said like, wait a minute, I haven't sold anything. I don't sell anything any day. And then I come in with my first sale and you tell me there's a beginning and end to everything. All right. Did you tell him the day you sell your customers, the day you lose them? <laughs> right. <laughs> Send them over the edge. Yeah, right. That's right. true. And so that's that's the issue when, when you, as I mentioned, buying these little small companies out, they were fleeting. I mean, I bought them out and and maybe a year or two later, I didn't have them. You're always looking for that new customer because the day, like you said, the day you sell your customers, the day you start losing them. Mm-hmm. And you have to, and that's why it's important to really bring it when it comes to the service and the customer relations and, and exceeding and meeting, I should say, meeting and exceeding customers' expectations. If you're not thinking that way, you're thinking wrong. Mm-hmm. So if you're thinking your customer owes you anything, you're absolutely wrong. They owe you nothing. You settle up with that customer every time you give them an invoice and every time you receive their check. You're done. You might have contracts. You might have agreements. Those are all important to do business nowadays. But the reality is if you're not servicing the account and meeting and exceeding your customer's expectations, you're, somebody else is going to be, be driving a wedge between you and your customer, and you'll end up out on the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So what I like about what you're talking about is um, the idea of scarcity and abundance. So a lot of people would never help somebody else start a competitive company because they would say, well, why why would I help somebody do this thing that I'm already doing? They're just going to go take customers that I could go get by myself. And that never occurred to you, never which did. I think a lot of people would never that would be the very first thing that they would think of is why would I do that? Yeah. Because you're just going to go – Get yeah. customers that I could go get tomorrow. So why would I help you? There and and they think yeah. the reason that That's it's amazing that this is the first time you've heard this concept. <laughs> yeah. <It laughs> not, <is. laughs> not not that it's maybe um, I'm not that smart. <laughs> no, no, because that's just so not how you think. Which is what's amazing and wonderful about you is that you're you are not at all scarcity minded and never have been scarcity minded. So to you, it doesn't occur to you to not help somebody. Because by helping them, it might mean that you don't get somebody or get get something that they would have or that they could get. But nine out of ten other people are very scarcity-minded, very fear-oriented, and it doesn't occur to you at all because you believe that there's enough of Well, there always is. Of everything, Ab- absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, Napoleon Hill talked about that. I mentioned him last week, I think, or maybe the week before. Um about his books, uh, Think and Grow Rich, the things I learned from W. Clement Stone and Napoleon. They, they used Napoleon Hill. Uh, he was he may have been alive back in those days. I'm not sure. He could have been. But um, certainly they used his writings and his sayings and his attributes and his isms in, in Success Unlimited magazine. And I guess it was because I was reading those materials and filling my mind with those thoughts that I didn't have room for other thoughts. It was interesting. Uh, just this week, someone mentioned – I forget who it was. Oh, Sam Girardi um, from real estate, a, a friend of ours in real estate. And he mentioned the recession in Detroit in 1971. Of course, it was, apparently he related it to a real estate recession or something. I don't think he was on real estate at the time. but And I remember, vividly remember, that I learned – about the 1971 recession in 1978. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, right. I read it somewhere. And yeah, I thought, it wasn't. We had a recession in 71? <laughs> right. It wasn't on your radar. <laughs> I was so busy building my life, building my family, building our life together. I'm looking at my wife right now, and she's smiling. And we were just so busy building our life and just doing all these positive things that I didn't, I didn't read the paper. I didn't listen to the news. I just was just doing what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I, I vividly remember, uh, I, I couldn't say vividly because I remember the time and the place where it happened. But I remember in about 1978, I read about the 71 recession. And then when Sam Girardi sat in my living room last Sunday mm-hmm. and was talking about the 71 recession, in my mind, I started smiling. I didn't tell him the story because I didn't want to interrupt him. It wasn't that important. But uh, I never had – I always have had an abundance mentality once I learned these concepts. Mm-hmm. I think the reason that I, I also bring it up is because when I started my business, I knew immediately that I didn't want to own a building. I didn't want to have the kitchen. I didn't want to have the production happening for me and there were there were a lot of reasons for that. I don't need to go into them right now. But um, So I knew I needed a co-manufacturer. I needed a co-packer. And what was amazing to me were the number of people who refused. They refused to tell me who their co-packer was or Mm, who their co-manufacturer was. No one. There was not one person um, who would tell me. And um, I just had to keep asking around. 
And then I ended up asking just somebody else sort of tertiary um, to the food business. His name is David Benjamin. And he used to be on this blog called The Hungry Guys. And Joe Hakim was one of the hungry guys with him. Joe has a podcast called The Herd Podcast. Um, and it's a food and beverage podcast in Detroit. Anyway, David Benjamin, I just asked him because we were sort of uh, connected. And I said, you know, do you do you know anybody who does this? And he said, I don't know anybody, but let me see if I know somebody who knows somebody. And he did end up knowing somebody. And he told me, well, you should go talk to R.W. Bakers in right. Muskegon. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was the only way that I even found out who I could go to because mm-hmm. there was just no one who was willing to help me. And the reason that they don't want to help you is because they they don't want to help you. <laughs> they no. don't want you to compete with them. Scarcity they don't right. want to um they don't want another person tying up the production line. Mm-hmm. Right. So if if the food is made in this contract bakery and that's all scheduled Mm-hmm. They want to have sort of that bakery at their beck and call. They want to have the first right of refusal and right. be able first to do, line, right. yeah, be able to do a pop up order because they know mm-hmm. that the bakery's not busy enough, so they'll kind of move heaven and earth to fit you in. So people don't want to draw attention to where they are because they like that a flexibility that it's afforded to them. And so I think that that's one of the things that took me so long to overcome was that nobody would help me. Nobody would tell me where Mm. to go. Yeah. Which was, to me, I didn't understand it because so many people have helped me in my life. Why would you not help somebody else? It didn't make any sense to me. Um, And I I don't look at the world like, well, there's not enough for me. So there's certainly not Mm -hmm. enough for you and me. And I'm sure that that was the way that I was raised. But the idea that I'm not going to help somebody because I'm afraid that and you know, I, 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 had, I had a lot of help along the way, and I guess maybe that's one reason why I was so eager and willing to help other people. Not eager, mm-hmm. I, maybe eager is too big a word or too positive a word, but de- definitely willing and able. I mean, why wouldn't you help them? Right. There's uh, no reason not to. They, they never looked at them as a threat to me. Mm-hmm. So you bought them out, um, and they were probably like elated to be done. I don't remember. I probably. I mean, they they wanted to be out of the business, and then mm-hmm. they were doing other. one 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 fellow is, is still a very good friend of mine. I'll put a plug in for his company, Mike Kassar from Century Carpet Cleaners. Oh. We've been friends for for a long, long time. And I got to revise that story with Mike. Mike already was in the carpet rental business when I met him. He was doing carpet rental and carpet cleaning, and then he did some carpet cleaning for us at home, and um, he. He offered to sell his company to me because he wasn't doing it right. He realized he wasn't doing it right. So that guy, he, I didn't help him get started when I think back on that story. Mm-hmm. There was two other guys I did. Um, but Mike was uh, – and he's still in business today. Uh, car, I think it's called uh, Century Flooring now. He doesn't do as much carpet cleaning as he does floor coverings with uh, hard surface and mm-hmm. carpeting and so forth. And that's kind of on trend right now is like less carpet and more – Yeah, exactly. And that's what he said. You know, what's the flooring. reason he got into the in the flooring business is because he wasn't cleaning as many carpets. Uh, it, people the, – the days of having someone do a living room, a, a dining room and three bedrooms for $99, that's kind of going away. Mm-hmm. And um, so there are all these hard surface floors. So he got into the flooring business, and he still does carpet cleaning. He does a really wonderful job. If you folks out there in podcast land need a good carpet cleaner, a good flooring guy, Mike Kassar from Century Flooring in Farmington Hills is the guy to call because he really is an honest guy. He's been in the business almost as long as I have in a different way, 
but in the flooring business. And he really is a, a man of integrity, has a good track record, been in business for probably four or five, de- not quite five decades like me, but four decades for sure because I've known Mike for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And that sort of sounds like Pat Norton from Sunglow where they were cleaning some carpet yeah, right. and realized that there was more opportunity elsewhere. And part of that was because they saw what was happening um, with their own business, but paying attention to larger trend. Right. It's like the guy from Patagonia, I think his name is Jan Chenard, and he talks about how if you wait for your customer to tell you what's happening, you've waited too long. You've right. got to anticipate what's happening before yeah, good point. Before they do. Yeah. So you sold Kenwood. You guys moved to Farmington Hills. Yeah, we rented a little building over off a research drive by 10 Mile Grand River. By there used to be a Holiday Inn back in the day. For those that might remember that geography back in those days, it's it's, it's almost like Auto Dealer Row now. Uh, there's a, a Bob Sellers is there, and mm-hmm. there's a Land Rover dealership, and there's just a number of suburban. I think uh, Tom Holster Ford is in that general area of vicinity, and. Um, but we, we rented the little industrial building. They call them incubator buildings. And oh. basically the landlord builds, a, let's say, a 40,000-square-foot building. And then he divides it up into 10 4,000-square-foot units. And the reason they call them incubator buildings because little companies like mine come and they go because they, they need to be somewhere, mm. but they grow out of it. Sure. So they either knock down a wall and take the next suite next door or they just, in our case, we bought a building in Novi. And um, it was interesting, too. Uh, Saul Waldman was our landlord, wonderful man, just a really, really nice man. And uh, he – Saul was I, – I looked at Saul as fearless. He was um, – uh, again, he was another guy, that no shortage mentality there. Uh, he was my landlord for uh, five years. And then I was going to buy a building in Novi off of Meadowbrook and Grand River, a 16,000-square-foot building. It was almost a million-dollar deal. It was very uh, – it wasn't intimidating to me. We were ready for it. Uh, the growth was like a measured success decision. And uh, when I when I went to buy the building, I went to Saul and I said, Saul, I'm going to be moving out of your building. And I'm buying a building from uh, two friends of yours, Archie Sills and uh, Ray Galper. And, uh, and Saul knew those fellows. Uh, they were all from the Jewish community, good people, really good people. And uh, I said, I'm moving into uh, – actually, I didn't know that Saul knew those guys. When I mentioned Ray Galper's name, he said, oh, I, I know those fellows really well. I said, well, it's over here off of uh, uh, Vincenti Drive, um, off of Meadowbrook, right behind the Cadillac of Novi uh, dealership today. And I said, would you look at the building for me, with me? And he said, sure. And uh, so he came over and he looked at the building. It was brand new. It was 16,000 square feet. As I said, it was almost a million dollars. And um, he said, yeah, it's a, it's a good building and these guys do a good job and so forth. And here I was leaving his building right. and, and you know, he's going to lose the tenant. But Saul wasn't a bit worried about that. If he could help me, he did. And I, I never forgot that. So much to the point that uh, Saul had uh, seen fit to give us a lot of his apartment buildings. He owned a, a, a lot of apartments. And um, we would take care of his apartment buildings for him you know, in Royal Oak and Farmington Hills and so forth. And he had a uh, – still does – a office center in – it's very – not real big, beautiful little building. It's, he keeps it very nice. It's in Sylvan Lake, not too far from Kegel Harbor. And um, that's where Waldman Construction is. That name of his company okay. was Waldman Construction. And uh, so he uh, – Saul eventually died, unfortunately, but life happens. And he died and Gavin, his – or Gavin, I'm not sure it's pronounced Gavin or Gavin – his son um, 
took over the company. And so one day I was looking at all of our accounts, not all, but I, I saw um, Waldman properties come up. And uh, I said to somebody in the office, do we still do all of Saul Waldman's properties? And they said, yeah. I said, do we, do we still do his, his headquarters there in Sylvan Lake, that little office building? And they said, yeah. So I got a hold, I got the phone number and I called up Gavin and I said, uh, Gavin, I said, uh, this is Doc Sloan. I said, oh yeah, Doc, how are you? I said, good. I said, he knew who I was, but I, I had more of a relationship with his father than the son because I'd be older than Gavin and younger than Saul. And so uh, I said, uh, you know, Gavin, I said, you guys have just been such loyal customers. I said, and your dad was so nice to me. I remembered that story that I just told you. It was on my mind. And I said, you know, Gavin, I said, in honor of your father, he was so nice to me. I said, we're going to start doing your office building in in Sylvan Lake at no charge. We're just going to do that. We're not going to charge you. And uh, because your father was so nice to me, I said, you won't pay ever again. I'll, I'll still charge you for your apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. But again, because of what your father did for me, it means a great deal to me. And after his passing, this didn't happen right after his death. It just sure. came to me to do this one day. And he was so touched by that. Mm-hmm. And uh, nice. again, just pay it forward or pay it backwards, whatever, but pay it back, you know, yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, give give a, a, a appreciation and um, and deference to people mm-hmm. who've helped you along the way. I've had a lot of help. Yeah, and that's so much that I think people maybe they forget or don't realize how much help that they've had. Absolutely, but there's there have been so many people who have helped me really for for no reason, you know, other than that they really wanted to, and then mm-hmm. it made them happy. And the idea that you would I would never want to accept that much help and then never help somebody else. It just seems, right. you know, like it. Right. That, doesn't seem like the right thing to do, but it it's surprising that a lot of people are just so afraid that there's not enough. Well, I also think that they've never really been thought – they've never really thought about it. It never occurred to them that they should start living their life that way. They've never been challenged to do that. And I don't mean challenged like dared or, or put on the spot and say, you know, they'd be embarrassed to say no. But the reality, they, I don't think they think that way. And then once, once you start to think that way, you quit thinking the other way and then you think more that way all the time, you mm-hmm. know? So um, – and the more of that that you do, the more of the doors that open. Oh, absolutely. If it's oh, karma yeah. or if it's, you know, what, the law of generosity or, right. or whatever mm-hmm. it is. It's, called, it's the law of going the extra mile too, part of that. And Napoleon mm-hmm. Hill talks about that. You know, Napoleon Hill talks also about – this is something we should cover. It has always been a very important – I mean, I don't know if I can remember it right off the top of my head. But Napoleon Hill in his book, Think and Grow Rich, talks about the six basic fears that all men and women have. And if I can, I'm going to put myself on the spot and challenge myself to go through them right now. But one of them is the fear of poverty. Another one is the fear of uh, ill health. One is the fear of death. One is the fear of, um, what did I get, three so far? I, I usually get five out of six. You've got poverty. You've got death. You've got ill health. Look up on your phone. Uh, let me look up on my phone. We'll get back to that. Okay. Because that's important to cover. Go ahead. Yeah. So one of the things that I um, have thought about a lot, and I, when I first had this thought, it was probably five or six years ago, and it was because I was sort of in the throes of starting my business, and I was also doing like a lot of personal development, um, yoga, and and whatnot, and sort of just exploring this this whole idea for myself. And when I really stopped and looked around at the world and everything that was happening, I realized that out of all of the human emotions, there's so many human emotions that we have, that if I had to choose one that I thought was the most destructive, damaging human emotion, 
it would be that fear, I really do believe that fear is the most destructive human emotion. Because if you can scare people, you can do anything. Mm -hmm. You can take anything from them. You can manipulate them. You can um, really control other people's lives just because of fear. And when you think about how people can't logically process something because they spend so much time being afraid and being manipulated and all of that. And from that fear-rooted emotion, so much other negativity comes out of that. It was really shocking to me if you look at the spectrum of human emotion, how powerful just that one is and how much damage can come from just that one, what Mm -hmm. seems like a simple human emotion. But people are so fearful and it ruins their health. It ruins their life. It ruins their perspective. It ruins relationships. their relationships. Right. And um, it covers absolutely so much. And I think that that's tied to this idea of scarcity and abundance. If you are so afraid that there is not enough, mm-hmm. then you really will not have enough. There will really well, yeah, be you, you know, this manifestation you'll, of you'll not get, enough. You'll get what you expect. Henry Ford said whether a man thinks he's right or whether a man thinks he's wrong. He's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's right. correct. You, you, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The, the, the six base of fear, basic fears are this. Uh, fear of poverty, fear of criticism, fear of ill health, according to Napoleon Hill, fear of loss of love, fear of old age, and fear of death. Mm-hmm. And you can take any one or all of those six basic fears and wrap them up. And some people may be uh, bothered by all of them or may be fearful of just one or two, but it makes your point. Whatever that trigger is that is your fear, that will be keeping you from the, the things you want. It'll be keeping you from the, the goals you desire. It'll be keeping you from the, to achieve the, the greatness that you see for yourself and for your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, what's also interesting to me on that list that I think might surprise a lot of people is the fear of criticism. And there are oh, so many people one. who are yeah. just – intolerant of the idea of opening themselves up to criticism, which is one of the reasons this is um, kind of a very simple example, but it's the thing that I'm thinking about because it happened most recently, was Emma going to her um, vocal performance Mm -hmm. to be judged. She sang solo. She sang two songs. And she sang it for a judge who was professional and had all of these years of experience. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, this is so impressive that the 16-year-old girl isn't thinking twice about showing up and singing these songs in front of this person who's going to judge her and their job is to find something wrong with what she did. Right. And that she didn't shrink back from that and that she was very gracious in the feedback that she got and she acted on it immediately. Mm -hmm. And I don't know adults who could do that. I was there and it was very impressive to see her and that lady that was the judge uh, she was a, a veteran. I mean, she mm-hmm. knew what she was talking about. There she no, gave excellent feedback. Yeah, she really did. She did it in a very positive way, though. Remember that? Mm-hmm. For those of you who are listening to us, you wouldn't have the privilege of having been there. But the reality was there's the, you have this young girl. She's 16 or 17 years old. She's beautiful. Uh, she's very tall and elegant. She has a wonderful voice, and she sings in Italian and she, uh, and also, of course, in English. But she did a, an Italian, a song in Italian, then, <laughs> then a, a spiritual in English. And... Um, the, the judge, as I was as I was watching the performance, the judge was sitting there with a notepad and just almost furiously scribbling notes. And I thought, how can you pick up all that and write all that down? But again, mm-hmm. that's her that's her expertise, right? 
And then when she came back and gave her critique, because she did not give a criticism right. of Emma. She gave a critique. Mm-hmm. And there's a big difference between the two. And when she did it, she did it in such a positive way that it was like you, 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 I think that Emma probably felt like, at least I felt like, as it, being a very part of the small audience in that room, was tell me more. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how can she? She told her uh, the critique was how to get better. Right. It wasn't about how bad you are. It's about you're doing this really good, but you can right. improve. You're doing this really nice, but are you right-handed or are you left-handed? Okay. Are you right-handed? Okay. Show me your feet because she had a long dress right. on, and she said, "Show me your feet." And so Emma was standing there, and she op- opened up her. Um, not open her feet. She lifted her skirt a little bit and um, it was floor length. And uh, she said, okay, now put your right foot forward a little bit and mm-hmm. then turn your left foot to an angle and they'll put more weight on your right foot and lean forward when you sing that. And it was like, wow, there's a lot to this. Right, <laughs> this, yeah. This. And and how powerful that was. And when Emma made those changes, she really changed the right. performance. She yeah, immediately you could see the immediate, you could see the immediate um, hear, you could hear the immediate difference. Right, right. Yeah. When she gave her that feedback, it was funny because it reminded me of when I was going through teacher training with Dale Carnegie and Ralph Nichols was overseeing. He's he was at that time the the owner of the Dale Carnegie franchise in Michigan, and he was overseeing our training. And one of the girls in my class or, you know, in the candidacy, she was standing with her feet close together, but one foot crossed in front of the other one. And she was almost like, it looked unstable, but it felt fine to her. And he looked at her and you could tell that one of the feet, the back foot had more weight on it than the other one. And he said, you know, I just want to know why you don't feel like you can stand on your own two feet. Oh, and she never did it again, and it wasn't mean oh. in the way that he delivered the criticism, but it, it because it wasn't criticism, it was an observation, a critique, and the whole point of being a Dale Carnegie instructor is that you are this packaged, um, you know, professional mm-hmm. that you can deliver this class in a very professional way, and you're an effective communicator. But I have thought about that so many times in my life that you know the idea that people don't feel like they can stand on their own two feet, and what is it? Mm-hmm about that. And I think, again, it goes back to fear. Are you afraid to be who you really are? Yeah. Are you afraid to really take ownership of the space that you occupy? And it was, you know, that was over 12 years ago. And I, I still remember that feedback. It was really, she was totally unaware. She right. didn't realize that she was standing that way. And there was nothing wrong with it. No. But, we you know, he's so skilled at understanding human emotion and, and the human experience and performance and commanding a room. He noticed it right away. And it was really this powerful question. Can you stand on your own two feet? We're asking you to do this. And we're asking you to take 50 students who come through this class Mm -hmm. to come up there and stand on their own two feet and stand in what is true for them and talk about their life experience. Um, And to me, it was a really powerful observation that he made. You know, I'd like to have you just uh, go back to Dale Carnegie for a minute because you told me just a beautiful story about that. Um, that gentleman that came to one of your students, um, that he had you crying. Do you remember that story? Oh, there were so many. <laughs> oh, well, okay. So the one, the one, didn't he have a speech impediment? Yes. So okay. he was the reason, Al Mason. Al yeah. Mason was the reason that I decided that I wanted to be a Dale Carnegie instructor. I had taken the class. Um, I was 25. I took the class and I really hated it. I got, 
I got there the first week and I thought it was going to be all about how to be a professional. I, here I am, an ex-chef, um, you know, trying to move into a different phase in my career. I was a college graduate, but I needed a professional job. And so I thought, well, nobody's going to hire me. Who wants to hire a girl who's been professionally cooking for all these years? And they're going to ask, why are you in this office setting? Why would you want to do this now? So I thought I'll take Dale Carnegie. So that gives me something better looking on my resume. And I got there and I was so upset. I thought, this is awful. Everybody in here is crying. (laughs) I was in a small private class at the UAW Hall out on Ford Road, way past, no, it was Michigan Avenue. And it was way past past Cherry Hill. It was way out there at the time. And I was in a GM, it was a GM class. It was a corporate class. And they put me in there because they didn't have enough to run a class out in Livonia where I originally wanted to take it. And the problem was that it was a small class because usually at that time, the classes were about 50 people in size. This had about 15 and they all knew each other. They all worked together and they worked for GM. And they were all friends and they already had this high level of like trust and, and interpersonal experience and felt really comfortable telling each other things about their life. And I had no really no idea what I was getting into at all. Um, I thought, well, we're here to be professional, and why is everybody crying? I don't have time for this. I don't understand right. why everybody's crying, crying. because they saw how much the tuition was. Right. Yeah. Why are we crying? And so, and chefs are not known for being the most empathetic people in the world anyway, so I was pretty upset. And it wasn't until I got to week nine, so the Dale Carnegie class is 13 weeks long, so I'm not necessarily proud to say that I was such a slow learner <laughs> and late adopter of the Dale Carnegie program, but it took me a solid 10 weeks because you started in week zero and it took me 10 weeks to get to week nine to uh, realize what was really going on in the class. And then after that, I thought, well, great. Now I've wasted all this time. I need to do this again. And you can apply to be a, a graduate assistant. You come and you help the instructor with their classes. And I'd so like that's what I did. Just a real quick minute as your father. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you told me you were Taking because you never consulted me, you never asked me. You <laughs> lived at home with us at the time, uh-huh. but you didn't, and you were well on your own with your own car payments and your own car, your, your own your own life. And uh, but you announced to me that you were in Dale Carnegie, and I was so proud of you. I was just, oh. I was just so proud, and I knew it wasn't inexpensive. I don't remember mm-hmm. what it cost back in those days, but like twelve or seventeen hundred dollars. Yeah, it was thirteen. I think it was thirteen fifty. Okay. Yeah. And I remember thinking, and you probably remember I told you I'd pay for half the class. Mm-hmm. I said, that's what my memory of it was. And you didn't ask for it. I just right. volunteered that because I knew it was expensive. And I was just so proud of you to have the initiative, to have the personal initiative to take a Dale Carnegie class. And, and, and again, involvement or commitment. The mm-hmm. chicken's involved, but the pig is committed. And uh, you were committed. And I was very proud of you. For I that. wasn't committed until week nine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you were committed when you when you <laughs> paid the 10. check. Yeah, you were committed so, when you signed up. Well, thank you. So I oh, decided, well, now I've lost this opportunity. I'm in week nine, and I've missed the whole thing. And clearly something really important is happening here. So I've got to figure out how to take this class again. And not pay for it. And not pay for it. So, <laughs> so that's another one of my skills is to be able to hack something like that. So um, – I Kathy Tassoyan was my instructor, and she's a wonderful, wonderful lady. She still teaches today. And so she said, well, sure, you can be a graduate assistant. And it was in 
so how it starts is you go to the orientation. That's week zero or week O for orientation. And then there's session one. You learn how to learn people's names. And in session two, it's – Oh, by the way, audience, that's very impressive to see your daughter stand up there, remember 50 names. People introduce themselves in a, in a circle and 30 to 50 people and see your daughter – Repeat everybody's name back to him. It's it was uh, it was very very impressive. I, I was rich dad proud dad. It's, dad. it's a little terrifying because you know you, out of all the people in the room, you better be able to do all fifty because <laughs> right. that's what you're supposed right. to do. And so um, the second week, though, it's called childhood incident. Now they might call it something different. I I haven't taught in a while. When I started my business, I wanted to be committed to my business, so I stopped teaching. And Childhood incident was a really um, important talk, and I can't give away all of the psychology behind we do childhood incident in the second session. There is a deliberate reason why they do childhood incident in the second week. And this guy named Al Mason got up there, and he was probably the fourth or fifth person. We've, this is your first talks, graduate, graduate assistant class. Yeah, and the class, you can only have a two-minute talk. You can't do right. longer than two minutes. The bell will ring. And it doesn't matter if you're done. If it's two minutes and your time is up, everybody claps wildly for you and you're going to go sit down. And we don't hear, hear the, the rest of your right. story. So Al Mason gets up there and he starts talking about how when he was eight years old, he was a young boy in uh, third grade. And uh, every Saturday morning he would watch cartoons. And he would start watching at maybe nine o'clock and at about – Nine fifteen, nine eighteen. His mom would be going up and down the stairs doing the laundry, and he said that in the time that it would take her in this eighteen minutes to do the laundry while he was watching cartoons, he would have been able to say one word because his stuttering problem was so severe that he wasn't able. I might cry while I tell the story because it's the most right beautiful now, story I've ever heard. The story. And it would take him 18 minutes to say just one word because he had such a severe disability with this stuttering. And so you then it got everybody's attention because he wasn't stuttering in his talk. There was no impediment to his speech. Mm-hmm. And then it was also sort of this other layer of shock and surprise that, like, you know, you can't believe the courage of somebody who's going to come to a Dale Carnegie class where you're going to give two two-minute talks for 13 weeks straight in front of a room full of strangers that you've never seen before. And you noticed when he was speaking that there was a lot of measure to what he was saying. So he's being very deliberate, but he was not stuttering when he gave the talk. And he told about how when he was in third grade, he was in his science class and the teacher said, okay, you guys, you've got to do a report about the solar system. And you have a couple weeks to do this report. So Al did his report and he came to class and he turned it in on the day that it was due. And the teacher said, all right, guys, well, I've collected everybody's report and now you guys are going to come up and you're going to explain your report and read your report out loud to everybody in the room. And now the whole Dale Carnegie class is just horrified that this poor kid, he's got a stuttering problem. He's going to have to get up and read the thing. It's going to be awful. And so he's really got, you know, hooked everybody's attention. (laughs) Everybody in the room is rooting for him. He's the the eight-year-old Al Mason. And uh, so he says, you know, the minute that he heard that, he was so sad and so kind of angry because, like, you know, why didn't he know this in advance and why was she going to make him do that? And everybody in the world knows that he stutters and the whole thing. And he was crying and he was crying so hard he was shaking. And the teacher noticed – 
that he was so upset and it dawned on her what she was asking him to do. And she walked up to him and she put her arms around him and she said, oh, Al, it's okay. We understand you don't have to do this if you don't want to do this. We understand that this might be too hard for you to do. And he said, no, I'm not going to be treated differently than anybody else. And I'm not going to not do the things that other people do just because I have this disability. And then there's no dry eye in the house. And here, like 15 years later, I'm still crying thinking about this story. Everybody in Dale Carnegie is just, you know, tears running down their face because it was just this beautiful um, inspirational moment. And I remember at that time I was working at the American Concrete Institute. So what a departure, right? Like I'm here, I'm the chef. How did I end up at the American Concrete Institute? And as you, you know, spoiler alert, it wasn't going well. And I was sitting there listening to Al Mason. And when I heard him say this, I thought concrete is not the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Concrete is not my path to a meaningful career. It is not where I belong. It is not what I want to do. I want to be around people who are doing things like this. I want to hear all of the inspirational stories. I want to meet all of these people because it didn't fail that even if you had people who came to the class, we called them hostages. (laughs) You came to the class as a hostage. You still walked out. You you were not a hostage when you left. And that wasn't because of the effectiveness of the instructor. That was because of the bonding and the attachments that people made in the class and that they saw from their cohorts that people are everyday normal people, but they do incredible things. Yeah, right. And they face the things that they're afraid of and – Um, And that they don't let that stop them. And people really end up being really inspired by that. And I think that that's why I do feel so strongly about fear being so powerful is because I've seen what – Fear of criticism, right? Yeah, fear of criticism or all of these things on your list or all the – Loss of love, age, or death. mm -hmm, Millions of things that people are afraid of that they never articulate. And it's just this prison that you've created in your own mind. And that it, right. it becomes very, very damaging. And you remember Mr. Washington that uh, Les Brown talked about was his teacher in high school. And he told him uh, he had a, he had a play to do and mm-hmm. he was supposed to announce the play. And Les went out and he had a speech impediment himself. Mm-hmm. And he said, and here's this great orator today. Right. He's but, incredible. But, but he's like 8 or 12, probably 13, 14 years old at that time. He was, I think he was a freshman. And he went out to do uh, this, announce this play. And tonight, ladies and gentlemen, and he said he got so terrified, he ran off the stage. And Mr. Mr. Washington said to him, Les Brown, what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. He said, I, I, I just can't do it, Mr. Washington. Are you not prepared? Did you not memorize your line? He said, no, no, Mr. Washington, I, I memorized my line. Well, then go out there and deliver it. He said, next time, Mr. Washington, no. He said, you go out there and deliver the message. And he went, yeah, right, exactly, yeah. now. And so he went and pushed him back out on stage, and he he kind of fumbled through it. He said, boy, don't you think the kids dog me the next day? Les mm-hmm. Brown, he can't even bring it up. He can't talk about it. He can't even talk in public. And he said, they made fun of me. He said, and then Mr. Washington made me get up and do more speeches. And he said, man, he said, they would throw wads of paper at me. He says, I'd catch them in the air and throw them back. He says, I, was getting, <laughs> I was getting better all the time. 
And then he ends his, his story about when he graduated from high school, he says, I stood up in front of my senior class and I looked at him with confidence and I said, I choose not to be a common man. It is my right to be uncommon if I can. I seek opportunity, not security. I do not wish to be a kept citizen, humbled and dulled by having the state look after me. I want to take the calculated risk to dream and to build, to fail and succeed. I refuse to barter incentive for dole. I prefer the challenges of life to guaranteed existence, the thrill of fulfillment to the state of calm of utopia. I will not trade freedom for beneficence, nor my dignity for a handout. I will never cower before any master, nor bend to any threat. It is my heritage to stand erect, proud and unafraid, to think and act for myself, enjoy the benefit of my creations, and to face the world boldly and say, this I have done. Mm. And when you see Les Brown on YouTube, you can look him up, Mm -hmm. ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I think it's on uh, one of the greatest speeches ever, or uh, It's Possible. But just keep looking up Les Brown on YouTube, and you'll find him tell that story, and it's just remarkable, and it makes mm-hmm. me think of Al Mason every time. Yeah, and so many similarities there, too. Al Mason was an African-American gentleman. Oh, he um, was? Yeah, okay. and, and that was also part of you know how emotionally difficult it was for him, right, because he felt that he would already be treated differently because he was African-American. He didn't want to be treated differently because he was African-American and he had this – Speech impediment. Mm-hmm. And the part that I forgot to tell was that he was the first one. Um, he insisted on going first. And he was the only one who went because it took him that long to read his report. He never <laughs> finished it. Really? Yeah. And um, it, But to, to stand school? there. In third yeah, grade. Mm-hmm, to stand there for a whole 32 minutes and wow. work through that is this incredible bravery wow. and com- incredible commitment to being everything that, mm-hmm. that you really want to be. And I'll never forget it. it was one of – out of the hundreds, I mean thousands of talks yeah. that I heard it, um, as a Dale Carnegie instructor – that one was something that I'll never forget. It was incredible. And you remember Les Brown also talked about that when he was in third grade or fourth grade or elementary school, and they wanted him to write down their goals and their dreams and their aspirations, and, and Les Brown said he wanted to be in radio. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the teacher looked at his goal, and she said, Les Brown, you could never be in, in mm-hmm. radio. You stutter. You, can't, you stammer. You can't speak. And he said, so I came home, and my dad said to me, what would you do today in son, the class today, son? He said, well, we talked about what we were going to do, and he said, and I was going to be in radio, but my teacher told me I could never be in radio. And he said, my dad got down at my eye level, as I remember the story. And he said, son, he says, don't ever listen to that teacher. Right. He says, you can be anything or any, go anywhere you want and be anybody you want to be, mm-hmm. he says, as long as you believe the dream you have. And then Les says later on in one of his other tapes, he says, and when you have these goals and aspirations and nobody can make you decide that you can't not do that, he said, life will yield to you. Right. I love that statement. Life will yield to you. Life will push you around. Right. But if you don't want it to, life will then yield. Mm-hmm. But first it has to push you around. That's great. So that's all of our time for today. It was a really fun conversation today. It was. Thank you. Proud of you, Stacy. Love you. Love you too. Well, this is all for today. Doc Sloan saying have a good weekend, a good a week ahead of you. Never had a bad day in my life. Bye. Bye-bye.